Welcome to Sex Care is Self Care, a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host, Patty Brisbane. HSDD, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, is a sexual dysfunction that can lead to lower sex drive. Many people may unknowingly dismiss symptoms of this disorder as a side effect of everyday stressors or aging. So how do you know if it's time to seek a professional help? Dr. Critchman and Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg are here to answer all of your questions about HSDD. Before we get started here today, Dr. Critchman, can we start with you? Can you tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, Patty, thanks so much for having us on today to talk about such an important topic in female sexual health. I'm uh, Mike Critchman. I'm a sexual medicine gynecologist. I'm board certified in OBGYN. I run uh, three high-risk breast ovarian centers uh, at the University of California, Irvine, where I am a clinical health professor. Uh, I'm also a, a sexual counselor, an ASEX certified sexual counselor, so I do some counseling for uh, men and women as well. And I am very fortunate to be the chair of the Medical Advisory Board for the Patty Brisbane Foundation. I have uh, worked with you closely for many years, and it is one of my passion projects to be involved in clinical research and help the uh, PBF move forward in terms of, you know, hardcore clinical research and really make a huge uh, dent in this uh, really important aspect of female sexual health and research. So uh, pleasure to be here, Patty. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, hello. Um, it is such an honor to be here. My name is Cheryl Kingsburg. I am a clinical psychologist and I uh, I'm the chief of a division of behavioral medicine in an OBGYN department. Um, so we do uh, women's behavioral health. Um, I'm at University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center. Um, so I have a division of behavioral medicine. I'm also a professor in the departments of reproductive biology, psychiatry, and urology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. We are the academic department for the medical school. Um, I'm a past president of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and a past president of the North American Menopause Society. So that might give you a hint of my research and clinical interests in uh, menopause, midlife women, and certainly in women's sexual function. Um, and therefore, I am the newbie on your board, on your medical advisory board. And so I am thrilled to be adding that to, um, to my CV and, uh, and to my career. And so it's an honor and a privilege to be here and part of this. This is gonna be a great day. And I'm so honored for all of you to be a part of the Patty Brisbane Foundation. Uh, so let's get, let's get started. Dr. Kingsburg, what, what, what is this HSDD? And uh, how is it different from, a, from low libido? So, Patty, thank you for having me. Um, I could talk about hypoactive sexual desire disorder all day long, and it is not an easy thing to get off, to roll off the tongue. It, well, that's why we shorten it to HSDD. Uh, but hypoactive sexual desire disorder really defines what it is. It is the persistent loss of sexual interest, sexual fantasies, 
uh, sexual drive, if you will. And the reason we, we call it a dysfunction is when there is distress associated with it. So when you said, how do you know if it's everyday stressors or strife and how is it a dysfunction? It is the persistence of it. Of course, all of us at some point or other through a pandemic or a stressful week are gonna say, oh, the last thing I can think about is relaxing and have a se having a sexual encounter. I'm not really in the mood. But this is about persistence, right? This is, it's, for example, take, take depression, right? We think about depression versus feeling depressed. All of us at some point or another are gonna be in a depressed mood, but that doesn't mean we have a clinical depression. That is persistent. So the loss of drive, the loss of appetite for wanting anything sexual, um, is very distressing to many women. And that's the difference between just having no interest and not caring about it and feeling the loss and, and really missing that um, desire, if you will. Can you explain the overlapping categories of sexual dysfunction and how they impact diagnosis of HSDD? Sure, when we think about sexual problems in women, I think it's helpful to, to think about it in four categories. There are issues of problems with desire, which is the wanting to have sex. That's the loss of appetite, if you will. It's like walking into your favorite restaurant and no matter how much you want to be hungry to enjoy your meal, you just have no appetite. And it's not that you can't go through the motions, you can, it's just that you miss the anticipation, the wanting, right? It's appetite, that's desire. Then there's problems with arousal, which is assuming you have the appetite, your, either your brain in terms of cognitive arousal just can't enjoy and feel pleasure, or more likely genitally, you're not able to feel the sensations of sexual arousal. So you have the desire, but the body isn't sort of following through with, without arousal. The next category are problems with the orgasm. An orgasm we define as the release of all sexual tension, usually experienced as pleasurable, right? It is the culmination of a sexual encounter. Um, and so, so some women can reach, have arousal, but they can't sort of flip over and trigger that orgasm. And the last category is gonna be pain. Um, and that would be pain with sexual activity. So obviously if somebody has pain with sexual activity, it may impact their desire, right? So we want to think about, well, is it that desire without desire, you just don't get aroused and therefore you're dry and you can feel pain or is it that with pain, it, you've lost all your interest in being sexual? Why would you want to have sex if it hurts? So that's why we break it down into categories and, we, and they overlap, obviously. Like I said, if you don't have desire, you're probably not going to get aroused and you won't reach orgasm. There's the overlap. But it's important to think about which is the primary problem because that will drive what will get you the best treatment, right? If you have a desire problem, you wanna think about treating desire. If you have a pain problem, you wanna think about treating the pain. And a clinician should be able to ask some very simple questions to help you identify which is the most prominent problem. And then let me ask, add one more thing to this mix, which is sexuality is understood from a biopsychosocial perspective. And that word is almost as bad as HSDD, but it reflects exactly what it is, which, are, which is that there are biologic factors that contribute to sexual function and problems. There are psychological factors that contribute to sexual problems like depression. 
There are cultural, religious beliefs and values that can interfere with sexual interest and sexual health and interpersonal factors, right? The quality of the relationship that somebody is in. You could have all the biologic drive in the world, but if you don't like your spouse, you're not gonna wanna have sex with that person. On the other hand, you could have a wonderful intimate relationship but have lost the biologic drive and therefore you would have problems with wanting to be sexual. So thinking about those factors and teasing out which ones are being compromised and the categories will absolutely guide you to what kind of problem you have and how you should go about treating it. Okay, well, Dr. Critchman, what are some symptoms associated with HSDD? Well, you know, I wanted to build a little bit upon what Cheryl had talked about in terms of some of the things that women may be experiencing. And really, I think the important concept to remember, Patty, is this, this element of distress. And um, for some women, it may actually just be subtle changes, right? It may be subtle changes that they have um, a decrease in their sexual fantasies, they have decreased sexy thoughts, um, they may feel different in terms of their sensuality and their, how they're experiencing it. And, you know, they may, you know, very often women will say, you know, <clears throat> when I used to see an attractive man, I used to kind of have these thoughts about him in terms of sexuality. And now I kind of just look at him and I say, wow, that guy must be an accountant. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being an accountant, but it may be just about how they're experiencing their sexual function. Um, and I know um, Cheryl discussed some of the things in terms of changes in medical issues that are very much uh, maybe a concern. There may be changes in hormones. Uh, very often we see that testosterone um, may uh, be impactful for your libido. So they may have decreased sexy thoughts. They may kind of feel like they're a little bit gray, right? They're not black, they're not white, they're not experiencing their emotions as they would. Um, they're not feeling their attractiveness the, you know, as they would be before. And again, this may be attributed to some of the hormonal shifts that are changing. That's part of the biological issues. And it's not only about testosterone. Uh, it may be changes in, in estrogen or other neurotransmitters or what have you. So the symptoms may be very subtle to be very dramatic, um, but important to recognize that they're persistent and that they are... Um, that they're impactful and they're really problematic. And these women want to want, they want to want to have uh, sexual activity. The other thing I wanted to mention really is about this concept of reactive libido. Uh, women will come in and um, they'll say, you know, I have no libido at all. And then I'll discuss the, the last situation. They say, well, I don't have any spontaneous libido. I don't instantly think about sexual activity on a regular basis. But when it happens, when I'm involved with my partner or by myself, it's a wonderful experience. I'm aroused, I get an orgasm. Um, I just have you know, different priorities. I'm cooking, I'm cleaning, I'm taking care of um, the home, I am working as an executive, and it's not on my number one list. So um, I think it's really important, and I'd love Cheryl's opinion about this too, is really to allow women 
to experience um, desire in different ways. And it's okay for a woman to start off as neutral. Um, what that means is that they're not kind of lurking for sex around every you know, corner. They can take it or leave it. It's not a top priority, but when they experience it, it's fine. So I think the importance of reactive libido is very, very important. And to build upon what Cheryl had said, you know, I see a lot of <clears throat> cancer patients and they come in and they'll say, I have no libido. But when we further investigate, they really have pain. They have changes in arousal. They have changes in orgasm. They have some concerns about cancer, cancer recurrence. And as a result, their mood may be lower. They are not interested in sexual activity, not interested in pursuing those. And it kind of permeates and they have a reactive low libido. Very often if their relationship is, if their relationship is supportive, that's fine. Um, but sometimes it's not, right? So, you know, remember when you're talking about libido, you may have generalized and situational. So generalized in all situations, I have no interest. Situational is, you know, it's in specific situations. As soon as, you know, the kids get on the plane going back to boarding school or I get on the plane and I'm going to Hawaii and I leave all the stress behind, my libido returns, that's a situational issue. Um, you know, and it may be, um, I've never had libido. It's a primary issue. I've never had it. I've never experienced, or it may be secondary to what we would call in medicine, like a, a medical impact insult, whether I've had a disease or I've had a concern or I've had something uh, acutely stressful going on. Um, so, you know, we've seen a lot of women who come in. I've seen a lot of women who've come in as a result of this COVID pandemic um, saying they have no interest, you know, and, you know, Cheryl can attest too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Sometimes you need a little break from your spouse. And it's, you know, that 2000 or 1500 square foot house is really small when you're there 24 seven all the time. And, you know, these can be very, very impactful situations. So understand that it could be an, an acute or chronic issue. It could be, you know, primary or secondary, and it could be in every situation, or it can be just in one specific situation as well. So let me ask this. Um, so if you just went to your general practitioner and you said, these things are happening to me, would they know about this? Or would they? Unfortunately, most do not. And both Michael and I have spent most of our career trying to help educate the general practitioner to, um, to be able to understand, address, and talk about sexuality. It is always amazing to me that, for example, physicians or nurse practitioners or anybody can talk about, you know, sort of smelly discharge or um, bowel function, but they can't talk about sex. And so where, where is that disconnect? Um, but we do actually, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health has published a process of care to help the general clinician who is not a sexual medicine expert assess, assess um, and identify and treat um, basic sexual concerns of women. We do have that available for clinicians. Uh, we also have a process of care um, for how to identify hypoactive sexual desire disorder so that they can assess and treat it. Because to Michael's point, 
We need to know is it that they don't have drive, but they have responsive desire, right? And so, and if they're not distressed, then we wouldn't necessarily treat it. We have women who will come in and say, I'm asexual. I don't have any interest and I'm not bothered by it. And guess what? We wouldn't treat them because they're not distressed. That is the key feature for how you make the diagnosis and think about a treatment. Now, Michael talked about responsive desire. And I have to say that one of the issues that always comes up is, you know, what, what matters more, the age of the relationship or the age of the person in the relationship? And it's the age of the relationship that too many couples have this false expectation that they are supposed to have spontaneous drive in this long-term relationship, right? That they're supposed to be fantasizing and, you know, dying to get home to their partner, you know, every day for 10 years going. And the fact is that you have about a two-year window of what we call limerence, where you're fantasizing and, you, you know, you'll put off all kinds of things in order to make love to your partner. After that, you know, you think about, well, what's on Netflix and what's for dinner before you think about making love to your partner. And that is not, that's a normal thing that happens in long-term relationships. So we don't really want to pathologize that. It just means that the smart couple figures out that you have to put that romance back in and you have to add some, you know, fantasy and pleasure and novelty. And, you know, that's where sort of true romance can come in as well. Um, but you don't want to over rely on that. There's also the idea to Michael's point of responsive desire. And he knows that the way I talk to women about that is saying, you know, I have no spontaneous drive to work out, right? I don't have that drive to go to the gym. If I waited for that drive, I would never work out a day in my life. So I don't rely on that. I know better. But what I know is if I show up, I put my workout clothes on, I get on the treadmill and then my heart rate goes up. I've worked up a little sweat. I'm in my rhythm. Then the smile comes on my face and I say, ah, oh, this feels great. Why was I so hesitant? We should do this more often, right? And that's going to be what many women will experience. They're not really thinking about sex. They're, they're not spontaneous about it. But once they get started, they know that it will be a good experience. And that's where it's helpful for us to validate that for women and to know that women sometimes take longer to become more aroused. That's where maybe a lubricant can come in and more foreplay and sensual play so that they can eventually sort of have their desire kick in. That idea that first there's desire and drive then arousal, then orgasm isn't always the case for women. And we need to sort of validate that it may be that it shifts a little. And the last thing I wanna say is um, about this is that there is also the concept of discrepant desire, right? There are no two people that will have exactly the same amount of drive. And what happens is that if it's too discrepant, if one person has really little desire, but some, and the other has a really lot, to, to Michael's point, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And the person who has less desire often looks like they control the situation. How come you're always the one that says yes or no? Because they have less desire. The one who has high drive is always willing to go. 
And so then that person tends to then fall into this, you know, gambler's fallacy. Well, I know my partner really only says yes, maybe one out of 10 times I ask. So I'm going to ask every single day, hoping one out of 10 times I'll get lucky. But all that does is push the person with less drive to kind of go underground and they never get to experience what little drive they may have. So helping a couple negotiate that discrepancy can be really helpful in, in, uh, in avoiding a big conflict in a relationship. Because what we know is that when sex is good in a relationship, it's good. You know, Barry McCarthy has always said it adds a little bit of value, but when it's bad or non-existent, it trains that relationship inordinately, um, making that, you know, sort of a, a really powerful negative stressor in the relationship. So it's important that, you know, we know that sexual health is important, but it absolutely has an impact on a relationship far outside the bedroom. Good to know. Uh, Dr. Critchman, are there certain things that can cause or put someone at risk for developing this? Well, you know, we talk about the biopsychosocial model. So I do think that there are, you know, some things that bubble up to the, the top. And we need to understand that there certainly are medical conditions, Patty, that will be influential, um, you know, and I think there's a lot of medications that can be impactful. And really, when you're when you're talking about a medication, and the effects on sexuality, you want to really look at what I would call a temporal association. So if you've been on birth control pills for 10 years and you come to see me and you say, you know, I have low libido for the last six months, it's highly unlikely that it's the birth control pill that has caused this. But if you come in and you say, you know, my doctor put me on birth control pills about six weeks ago. And since then, you know, I've really noticed a really big change. Um, so really this acute change of medications, we know that there's a lot of medications that are very commonly prescribed birth control pills may be the number one for women that, you know, birth control pills impact your testosterone, your lower testosterone may be influential on your development of, of low libido. So the medications that we're, we're giving uh, may be impactful. Chronic um, medical conditions also may be impactful as well. Um, you know, Cheryl discussed this. Sometimes, you know, we're in uh, challenging relationships where privacy is an issue, where long-term relationships, uh, the, you know, sexual boredom has set in. Uh, I don't want to underestimate the issue of stress and stress and fatigue um, and really about deprioritizing, right? Uh, women may deprioritize sex. They're very busy, their own sexual needs may be lowered on the totem pole. So those are other issues as well. So privacy, child rearing, we know even things like um, breastfeeding. Um, in the postpartum period, you are managing exclusively to nurture that child, to help nourish and have that child develop. But we know that you are fatigued, you know that there's stress, uh, we know that there are hormonal shifts, right? You have vaginal dryness, you have changes in your central neurotransmitters, the changes in prolactin and dopamine, and those may also be influential on your libido. And if you think about it, um, your attention, your needs need to be focused on that newborn and nourishing them, not to be interested really on getting pregnant again. So part of it may be an evolutionary response. So there's medical conditions, there's life cycle 
issues. Uh, don't underestimate the issues related to stress and fatigue and privacy as well. Um, and this kind of waxes and wanes. So there's certainly biological issues that influence whether you're not gonna get low libido and psychological issues as well. And I know Cheryl's gonna jump in any minute because she really is the biopsychosocial expert uh, in sexual medicine. Let's go ahead and jump in. Let's talk about that. Well, you know, uh, to Michael's point, if you have certain stressors, that's, and you know, you're, you're about to, you know, get fired or you're, you've just been unemployed, that is not hypoactive sexual desire disorder. That is called life. And so we don't, again, want to over pathologize the fact that we're, we're not ha having drive all the time. And in fact, when we think about desire, think about it uh, essentially on a, as a tipping point, right? Think about a scale. And there are factors that create excitation or desire and factors that create inhibition or lack of desire. And as a species, we do not want excitation all the time. We, if all we did was think about sex, we'd never get anything done. So there are good reasons why we have inhibition, uh, but there are biologic and psychological factors that create the excitation. So to Michael's point on the excitation side, physiologically, Dopamine, it is the neurotransmitter of reward processing. It, is, it makes us feel good, and, and so that's important. Uh, but also hormones are important. So, you know, testosterone is important for drive and uh, vasopressin and melanocortins. On the inhibitory side, guess what? Serotonin. You know, we always think about serotonin as so important for our, you know, mood regulation and stabilization, but it's not great for drive. And that's why sometimes using antidepressants like the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Lexapro, that can sometimes inhibit our drive, you know, even though it's helpful for our mood. So those are sort of some of the biologic factors, but also psychological factors, the, the quality of a relationship, the level of stress in your life, if it's good, you know, if there's little stress, if you're in a great relationship, if you have past experiences that have been positive about sex, that will tip you over into having more desire. On the other hand, if you've had bad experiences, sexual trauma, for example, or you're in a conflicted relationship or you're under a lot of stress, that's going to inhibit your desire. So what we're trying to do is create more balance towards the excitation without recognizing that, you know, at, we can't have excitation all the time, right? And that's in that, so biopsychosocial is psychological factors, biologic factors, cultural factors, interpersonal, they all contribute. We try to address which are the modifiable factors, right? So if it's a relationship issues, let's help them with the relationship. If it's situational factors, let's change that. If it's a medication issue, let's change that. Those are things we can modify. On the biologic side, we actually do have some pharmacologic treatments for low drive. If those factors, you know, if we can rule out essentially all the relationship and psychological stressors, then we think about biologic and we have two FDA approved treatments um, for uh, premenopausal women with low desire. There is uh, Flabanserin uh, brand name Addy and Bremelanotide brand name Vilesi. And for postmenopausal women, off-label use, but good evidence behind it, 
systemic testosterone in a topical gel form is has been uh, recommended for treating postmenopausal women. If if they are in need of a biologic option, we do have them for women, and we should not, you know, pathologize or make them feel like um, they should be ashamed if they are seeking help. So, are there any other treatment options? So, Patty, you know what I normally do is I, you know, my approach to treatment of sexual problems is what I would say conservative to more aggressive. So. You know, um, we talk about behavioral things, uh, first and foremost, uh, bibliotherapy, reading books, getting educated, understanding your body, understanding your response. Um, even things, simple things like, you know, turning off the TV and having, you know, effective communication with your partner, one-on-one, -on -one, maybe date nights, maybe sexual exploration, different things like that. Um, so there's certainly things that you can do. And the first is becoming educated that there is an issue and becoming empowered that we wanna change the status quo. I think that's the first step towards getting better and first step towards getting treatment for lowered libido is understanding that maybe I have an issue and maybe we're, we need to address this and prioritize it because you know the kids are gonna be gone and we need to focus on us and really improve our communication. Then we move, you know, for me, um, most people don't know, I have a really strong interest in complementary and alternative medicine. So, you know, I, I really believe in, um, you know, complementary and alternative care, things like mindfulness, uh, supplements. I know Pure Romance has uh, testosterone boost and it's been shown to be effective. And that might be a subtle change. It might be, you know, I'm not ready for the big gun treatment, but I want to boost my testosterone and I want to see how that works. And again, um, look at the science, look at the data, look at the ingredients. And, you know, there are some supplements that have, have some good data to support their use and efficacy. Then we move into the hormones. And, um, you know, for me, it's not only about testosterone. Um, I am a little more liberal with testosterone, both in the pre and postmenopausal. Uh, although the data is much more supportive for postmenopausal, some younger women have testosterone deficiencies. And if you give them a little bit back, they do wonderfully. Um, and then, you know, there are advanced medications. Cheryl uh, discussed those in terms of phlebanserin or Addy and Bilesian bremelanotide. And those are, you know, what I would call the big guns. They have large randomized clinical trials. They're FDA approved and what have you. Um, but there are, you know, clearly shortcomings with them. Um, you know, sometimes access, sometimes cost uh, may be a problem. But again, uh, not many clinicians know about these medications. So you need to get a sexual medicine um, uh, expert and uh, someone who is comfortable prescribing these. And then sometimes for some, you know, the, the most dramatic uh, issue is really what I would call a partnerectomy. Uh, sometimes the relationship is toxic and sometimes they have come to get permission to leave that relationship. And remember, um, I would just say this, very often, you know, we know at least 50% of marriages end in uh, divorce. And um, when 
when HSDD sometimes happens is at midlife, right? And midlife is fraught with a lot of um, complications. You know, kids are going off to school probably, or there's, you know, empty nest syndrome. There may be changes in finance. There may be, um, you know, the glue that held a relationship together, which is very often the kids and they interact via the kids are gone. And then they're kind of looking across the table and saying, wow, am I going to really have to spend the next 20 years with this person who I really know nothing about anymore? And we only interrelated by the kid. So, you know, there's, there's very often um, this hard uh, treatment paradigm from conservative to more aggressive. Uh, and a sexual medicine expert, you know, really wants to delve into all these treatments. There's no magic bullet really. And uh, the thing that I always want to mention is we want to set realistic expectations with treatment. And women are very concerned that, you know, I said, well, you know, there's medications, there's different things. Um, and they're like, well, what is it going to do to me? You know, and I really want to remember and remind people that subtle changes will happen. Uh, very often women will say, you know, I have more sexy thoughts now. I have more sexy dreams. I say yes more often than I would say no. Uh, I'm more responsive. Uh, I, I feel more sexy. Uh, their concern is that they're going to become hypersexual. They're going to be lurking around the water, corn, the water cooler, like craving sex and doing things that are really outside of their personality. And really that's not true. There's subtle effects that are really meaningful to that woman. So setting realistic expectations with treatment, I think is really, really important. Okay, Dr. Kingsbury, is there any other treatments or resources that have been missed that you might wanna talk about? Well, I do think that the um, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, their process of care for, for HSDD, you know, gives you a nice model, which says education first, and that, and Michael's spot on to say education should be the first line of, of treatment, that women need to know their bodies, they need to know what desire is, they need to know what's a reasonable expectation, what's temporary loss, what is HSDD. Second line would be um, to make sure that you have addressed all those modifiable factors. Are there medical conditions? Are there medications they're on? Are there situational things that you can change? Then we get to sex therapy, right? So it is essentially psychotherapy that is addressing the negative beliefs and behaviors that maintain that loss of desire. One of the best ways to address sex therapy is actually a behavioral model started in the 1960s by good old Masters and Johnson that some people weren't even around, you know, to even know that, the, that couple, but they were the first two to empirically study the sexual response in, in uh, males and females. And so they came up with this, this very structured behavioral model that really is in some ways very mindfulness-based. They did mindfulness therapy before mindfulness was a thing. And it really is about um, a, a series of, of couples exercises, you know, geared to reduce anxiety and to build sensual touch you know, building from sort of non-genital touch to more, more specific genital touch 
to reduce anxiety and build pleasure and to stay present in that non-judgmental experience. And that's a really wonderful approach. So sex therapy in a variety of ways, cognitive therapy, mindfulness, and then we address those, those uh, pharmacologic options. And I don't wanna, you know, Michael, I understand your concept of it's the big guns or more aggressive, but I don't think that that's fair. I think you need to think about looking at the problems that a woman comes in with and seeing, is she going to be benefiting from psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy or some other modification or sometimes the combination? right? It is just how I would treat depression. For some women and some people, cognitive behavior therapy is the best approach to treat depression. For some, it really is going to be an antidepressant. And for others, it's going to be a combination. It is not a one size fits all. And it's not that somebody is more broken if they need one of those, uh, those treatments. It is about what's going on that's causing the problem that then will help decide the, which is gonna be the best treatment. So it is really a, a full range. It, the, the problem is that women aren't knowing that they can get treatment. They don't know they should ask for help. And so that's first and foremost, the education that HSDD is real. They are entitled to want their drive back. It isn't just the, oh, you're, you're, you're older now. You shouldn't need sex. You know, you're not trying to procreate anymore. We need to get rid of that myth and, and re-educate uh, you know, women that they are entitled to their sexual life well into their 70 day, 70s, 80s, and beyond. I think that's, yes, absolutely great. I think you should enjoy sex as long as you have breath left in you. So with that being said, I want to thank my guests. Dr. Michael Critchman and Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg for a great conversation. And if you liked what you heard today, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health and our focus areas, visit pattybrisbanefoundation.org. Remember, sex care is self-care and sexual health matters.